Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 88 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the twisted genius, Dean Ayers, and I am accompanied, as ever, by my colleague, the sports journalist, Liam Happ. Good evening to you, Liam. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dean. That was actually a really, really nice introduction. I could have I swore I was due a nasty one. I know. There, there is an abusive one coming. but Oh, but great. Just, yeah, just, just yeah, not, not necessarily right now. We've got to keep you on your toes. You know? Yeah, thanks for the heads up. You're welcome. You're welcome anytime. Uh, it's it's been a it's been a, a, a crazy busy day for us in in the in the world of social media. The the because WCW Twitter account has blown up and be, blown up better than the ring uh, <laughs> AEW Revolution anyway. So uh, 57 seconds we have that. I thought we'd be at least two minutes before. We... <laughs> but you 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 never cease to amaze me. Unlike the main event. So um, yeah, we we uh, well, well you you tell uh, you tell our our uh, listeners what what you decided to tweet this evening or yeah, this afternoon I should say. Okay, so on on one of our other ventures, which is the the wrestling website hookedonwrestling.co.uk, I decided to air out some of my frustration at such a, a good show, a great main event, and honestly, what I thought could have been one of the better baby-faced turns at the end of the show in recent memory, all being flushed down, down the drain by a, uh, a, bit, a bit of a naff ending. And I referred to that ending in a variety of ways in it. I think uh, one of them was uh, a Wiley Coyote slash Dr. Evil-esque gaff. Uh, one of them was, I said, uh, the, about them being in close proximity to a handful of Roman candles. Uh, and one of them was that there was apparently the big explosion at the end of this exploding barbed wire deathmatch main event was um, was like having a bad blaster on each ring post. And given that this is because WCW, uh, I felt like I had to carry that on. And I've done a little tweet off the official Because WCW Twitter page, at Because WCW. And I've, I've said I really enjoyed their tribute to the Bad Blasters with a picture of, a classic picture of Johnny B. Bad, tagged Mark Mero in it for good measure. Mark thought it was quite funny and retweeted it and continued to post fun i think i think good-hearted fun because mark's a very nice guy you know i've always positive always happy but he's had a bit of a laugh as well and it's just gone crazy it's been a lot of fun so far today he now follows us we follow him and i think i know who i'm going to be courting for our next wcw <laughs> alumni <laughs> guest Alumnus, yes yeah. so yes yes if you are a new listener to this podcast then welcome um we are as i said this is our 88 episode so you've got 87 to catch up on wherever you get your podcast from you'll be able to find our back catalog or you can go to because wcw.podbean.com um 
we we look over old WCW shows, as the name suggests. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Sometimes we do a watch along of a Nitro, and sometimes, like we're doing today, we have a special guest come along to review a pay-per-view with us. And it just so happens that this pay-per-view, the Great American Bash 96, is in the timeline of the Nitros we've been watching. So the last episode, episode 87, we were looking at the go-home show for Bash 96. And I'm very pleased to say that here to join us to review the Great American Bash 96 is Sports Media's James Dickens. Good evening to you, James. Good evening, Dean. How are you doing? Hey, Liam. I am very well, thank you. Now, I, I believe that you have previously uh, endured working with Liam, so this isn't uh, this isn't anything new to you. It's not. No, I mean we've done we've done a wrestling podcast before, and I um I yeah I commissioned him to write quite a lot of wrestling and, and boxing content in the past. So uh, yes, I, I've worked with him for better or for worse. It's happened. <laughs> so where where does uh, your your love of wrestling stem from? Um, yeah, it's kind of been off and on, really. I think as a kid, um, I was I was really into into wrestling. I had a friend who was kind of the only person in the, who I knew who had who had Sky or B Sky B. I think it was at that point. Um, and yeah, I think he he VHS taped SummerSlam '89, I think it was, and gave it to me. And I kind of got into it then and um, watched where I could at his and you know uh and then uh, I can't I kind of followed it as best I could um obviously there was WCW a lot on on ITV um I used to record that in the middle of the night and, and uh watch it first thing in the morning so there's a lot of the a lot of the guys in in this great American bash 96 who were kind of who was taking part in those those tapings that I I, I watched back then uh, and then I kind of fell out of touch with it for a while, followed it from a distance. Um, and then a, a, a colleague who I hadn't seen for a while, and we were trying to arrange a drink, uh, and it never really happened. And he invited me to a Revolution Pro event at York Hall. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm not going to see him any other way, so I'll go along. It'll probably be <laughs> yeah. ridiculous, but I like wrestling in the past, so why not give it a go? And uh, I absolutely fell in love with it. It was It was amazing. I'd spoken to Liam quite a lot about kind of British wrestling and the scene. And so I, I knew bits and pieces about it, but just, it was just such good fun and everyone, no one took themselves too seriously, both the fans and, and the wrestlers and the whole event. And it was just, I absolutely fell in love with it. So I've been, went to a lot of Rev Pro, uh, Progress, um, Attack Pro Wrestling in the UK. Um, and, you know, from that, you kind of, some of these guys that you see end up in, New Japan or they end up in uh, NXT or even in the main WWE roster. So this kind of, it kind of spreads. Um, I went to the New Japan event with Liam and uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I'd like actually like to be into it more if I had the time, but with work and kids and whatever, <laughs> yes. uh, it's difficult, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's become a kind of a big passion thing for me. Yeah. And um, you mentioned work then we said you, you're, you're uh, in the world of sports media, but what, what is it to, uh, what is it that you do, and how did you how did you get where you are? Yeah, I mean it's a very it's a, it's a very good question. I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean I I started years ago doing bits and pieces on the internet uh, with with sport, you know, bit of coding, bit of writing, video editing, um, 
and it kind of mushroomed to a point where I was I was head of sport for Yahoo, which is where I employed employed Liam. I was there for doing that for for four years, um, having been at, at the company and worked my way up for a while, so 13 years. I then went, I moved across to, to goal.com. So I ran, um, I ran that for two years, biggest football website in the world. I think it still is. Um, and then most recently I've moved on to, to motorsport networks, which runs autosport magazine, motorsport.com. And it's back, it's the biggest motorsport publisher around at the moment. Um, both print and, and digital. So yeah, I, I kind of, I, I run stuff there at the moment. So it's always in sports publishing, just working my way around different sports. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one. And you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. So we are, uh, we are here. We have arrived at the Great American Bash 96. So Liam, just to um, just to, to fill in any gaps that uh, that our listeners might have, we've we've had quite the journey to this point in time. The the outsiders have arrived, and it's all kind of ready to kick off, isn't it? Yeah, we we've had a good little streak of thoroughly enjoying the recent Nitro watchalongs, which may or may not have something to do with the fact that Hulk Hogan has not appeared in person for the last six to seven episodes. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> and obviously it has twins now with the fact that Scott Hall has shown up. Uh, the very most recent episode that we covered, the go-home show, as you put it, uh, Kevin Nash showed up as his big surprise, yeah. and he uh, and he asked us to look at the adjective. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Actually, can I, can I just correct you uh, where you said about Hulk Hogan? He hasn't appeared in person. Oh, but... yeah. Fuck me if we had enough video packages for him over the one, the, the weeks. Uh, I mean, oh. if given the choice, though, I'll take that over having him single-handedly squash half the roster. Because he was getting... This, this we is always, very true. Yeah, we always called it his midlife crisis, watching him in 95 and 96 pre-heel turn, didn't we? And oh, yeah, yeah. It, it was getting increasingly desperate. So a, a timeout is welcomed, even if it did come with the caveat of, yes, he's going to have these daft video packages. The wrestling around that has been pretty good. The storylines have been interesting. If if stammering stops start, you think of the, the stuff with the... The, the Horseman and the Dungeon of Doom. What's the deal with Sting and Lex Luger? Yep. Uh, so they've really drawn these out a little bit, but there's still a little bit of interest. And the matches that have been set up for this pay-per-view are very interesting. And even though it's the Giant defending the world title in the main event against Lex Luger, which has had its fair share of good build, for me, the big interest level is Flair and Anson wrestling against two American football players. Yes. Yes, well, well, we start with that. Yeah, our pre our pre show hype video uh, shows the the NFL footballers against Flair and Anderson match, and also the the world title match, Luger v the Giant. Uh, as you say, it is June the sixteenth, nineteen ninety six, and we are coming from the famous Baltimore Arena in Baltimore, Maryland, site of many great bashes in the past. The one that always sticks in my mind is Sting finally winning the world title in 1990, of course. And a great um, lunch of mine. I had a great lunch outside that building. <laughs> and you had lunch outside, yes. How can we forget the great American lunch? The great American. Of, uh, it was incredible. And I met Michael Phelps that day. What a day. 
<laughs> what 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 was the greater highlight? Lunch, you know me, right? It's the lunch. Yeah, it's the lunch. Yeah. Um, so the national anthem plays with Craig Pittman in military uniform holding the U.S. flag. Um, the director, for some reason, uh, well, I guess the reason is because WCW, but for some reason, the director bizarrely decides to cut two people dressed as Sting and the Macho Man who decide to mug to the camera rather than act how you're meant to act during the playing of your national anthem. We then go to our commentators for the evening, Tony Giovanni, and God help us, we've got Dusty Rhodes in the booth without Heenan there to filter him. Dusty is wearing the biggest leather jacket I've ever seen in my life, with his, which is bright red for added impact. Um, Shivani then mentions the death of Dusty's former tag partner, Dick Murdoch, who died the day before. Um, Dusty briefly says that he was a good man and a good friend, deciding presumably not to mention that numerous people said he was a massive racist and a member of the KKK. Um, obviously, I, uh, you can't be sued for libel by the dead. Um, then he says he would have, that Dick Murdoch would have loved a night like this. So Dusty is basically using his ex tag team partner's death to shill the pay per view that you had to have already ordered to be watching this introduction. Amazing. That's so, when you should have done your because WCW, in fairness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I like to think now that, you know, if there's anyone new listening, this is their first episode. We've we've set the tone. This is what we're like. Absolutely. This is, this is, yeah, this is our, our podcast. So match number one is Fire and Ice, which is Ice Train and Scott Norton against the Steiner brothers. Uh, Dave Penz is our MC. He states that the special stipulation in this match is that there must be a winner, which surely really should be the case in all wrestling matches um scott stone is making a little bit more effort of slapping fans hands because he, he really hasn't recently been into being a baby face has he liam oh, i was actually going to ask you we normally have the uh, the tony shiavoni watch at the start to see how much he nauseatingly hypes the the pay-per-view obviously dusty overshadowed him in this instance but I think we might have to, at least when we do the watch-alongs and any pay-per-views on this timeline, we may now have to implement the Scott Steiner moodometer. Yes. And it looks like he's actually quite safe on this one. He's quite high up on the good mood. Normally, he's he's down in the red zone. He's very, very burly. And he's he just can't wait to let Big Popper pump out, can he? Yeah. I think if Scott Steiner's mood was a weather forecast, it would be like sunny intervals. Mm, very yeah. seldom sunny intervals. This is this is a rare. <laughs> yeah. This is like the British summer we're seeing right here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, we're told that these two have had numerous matches with inconclusive finishes and, and casting our minds back. We did see a double count out on an episode of Nitro about three weeks previously. Um, but Shivani also mentions they've faced off on Worldwide Wrestling too. So we start off with Ice Train v Scott Steiner, and I, I guess you can't really single out anyone as the powerhouse of their respective teams. Um, we're seven minutes into the pay-per-view and already Dusty Rhodes is talking in tongues and not really making much sense. Uh, Ice Train wallops Scott with an almighty clothesline and before long all four men are in the ring and a pair of clotheslines clears the ring of fire and ice. And we then switch to Rick versus Scott Norton, with uh, Rick eventually getting the upper hand with another huge clothesline and a belly-to-belly suplex. Later, Scott hits his patented spinning belly-to-belly suplex on Ice Train, which always looks impressive. Um, Scott then hits what we'd now call an exploder suplex on Norton, who just avoids landing on his head. Um, 
Norton later manhandles Scott up onto his shoulders into a backbreaker position and lands a shoulder breaker on the left shoulder, which had previously been aggravated earlier on in the match. Um, he clamps on a Fujiwara armbar, but Rick immediately comes in to break up the move and save his brother. Uh, he boots Norton in the face three times, but Norton won't let go. It takes a fourth boot this time into the chest to get him to release the hold. Norton goes for the shoulder breaker a second time. He's unaware Scott's made the blind tag. Scott wriggles out. Rick levels Norton with yet another huge clothesline and a released German suplex. Um, Norton power bombs Rick before Ice Train hits a second rope splash, but Scott makes the save while Norton just stands there and watches him. Scott's then knocked to the floor again as Norton hoists Rick up onto his shoulders. Ice Train goes to the top. Scott gets up onto the apron, knocks Ice Train off balance, and he crotches himself on the ropes. The Steiners then hit Norton with their top rope bulldog double team, but Ice Train makes the save. Scott then hits a pretty horrible-looking Frankensteiner on Norton, while Rick and Ice Train tussle with Ice train looking like he's trying to pin rick but the referee makes the count on scott covering norton and we have a decisive winner that being the steiner brothers in 10 minutes and 29 seconds so james what did you make of our pay-per-view opener yeah i mean it was um this i think i guess for context as well i think this is quite these all these are quite interesting because for me i watched wcw before like maybe three or four years before this, mm. and then I watched WWF slash E before, and then quite a lot after. And and this this seems to be a combination of all the people who I've seen in both, like kind of at the midpoint. Um, and the Steiner brothers were one of the reasons I fell in love with wrestling in the first place. So um, just watching them again is amazing. You know, just the whole the whole dog face gremlin thing is brilliant. And um, yeah, I mean it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't brilliant, but you know, as a as a first match for, of a pay per view, it was, and having the Steiners on, it was it was fantastic. Um, I I must say I, I don't I don't really know anything about Scott Norton and Ice Train. Um, I think from this evidence, I think Scott Norton should have stuck with arm wrestling because I mean he was basically doing things because he was an arm wrestler, like clotheslines all over the place and things like that. So. Um, yeah, I, I think it was, it was a good start, um, and I, I really enjoyed seeing the Steiners back in action. Um, just a brilliant tag team, really. Yeah, oh, absolutely, one of the all-time greats. But yeah, Scott Norton had more success um, in in Japan than in America, where he was uh, kind of a giant foreign menace. He never never quite hit great strides in um, in America. But um, Liam, art of the opener, I mean, we, we've seen in previous uh, or in future years, I guess, the, the trend tends to be towards the spectacular high flying. But at, at this point in time, this is just four big guys smacking the crap out of each other. Yeah, at the root of it, we generally say more action than story makes for a decent opener because the, the, the things that have been built up more on mainstream television will have the crowd investment. And while you've got the crowd already hot at the beginning of the pay-per-view, you don't need to waste a, a, a big storyline in that slot, really, do you? So I think this yeah. still applies. Obviously, the difference between this and the more and the more fluid wrestlers that could open it, such as an Eddie Guerrero, or the uh, or the, or the Luchadors with their exciting Chris Wafflein, is that these guys are more prone to make a botch 
and we saw plenty of those here. It was a bit of a car wreck at times, but it was still a good Hoss tag match. The big hard-hitting stuff clearly had a, had the desired effect on the on the audience, and because even though they'd done like sort of a a, a build-up with indecisive finishes on on previous shows, you'll remember Dean on the watch-alongs they were actually having fire and ice in a in a weird hill-on-hill mini issue with the giant where the giant squashed Ooh. them individually. So as far as most people, given that we're really gearing into Nitro and Raw being the focus now, for the for the most part, this this storyline is is a non-entity so it does make sense to stick it in the opening slot the one thing i will say about the uh uh, the moves being shown the botches particularly it's the one at the end considering who we have debuting for wcw later on in his show and combining that with that horrific frankensteiner this (laughs) this would probably be the ideal time to say to scott steiner right you need to retire that thing uh, and just just let the luchadors do it because they know how to do it now, and they're not they're not great big balloon animals like you are. Indeed, I will yeah, say it to his um, face though. Well, we, that, if you do, can we record it for the podcast? If you're paying to send me out to his Georgia branch of Shoney's, then yeah, you can film it as long as I get lunch for free before I die. <laughs> And, and it's as good a lunch as you had in Baltimore. Well, maybe we'll start a GoFundMe for that one. Um, okay, so we go backstage to Mean Gene, who's talking with Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan about his opponent for this evening, Chris Benoit. They're going to be having a Falls Count Anywhere match. And um, I don't know about uh, you two chaps, but was it very clear? It seemed very clear to me that Sullivan was reading from cue cards because he was permanently looking down past the camera, presumably it was something that was written for him. Yeah, I I mean this is I'm because I'm a professional obviously I'm <laughs> I made copious notes here and one of the things that stood out outside of the horsemen really was that the promos weren't good um, they were kind of I think they were either they were either reading from a cue card like in this instance or they were just winging it and they weren't very good at it. I mean Lex Luger's was really bad um, but we'll get to that later but yeah I I felt like uh, yeah, I mean, it, they were. It, it was very. It looked very false and not convincing at all. And having Jimmy Hart shouting randomly and jumping around didn't really cover up for that. Yes. Oh dear, poor Kevin Sullivan. Um, so match number two is for the WCW United States Championship, and it features Conan defending against a a new wrestler um, called El Gato, uh, the Cat under a mask um he comes out to pretty much no reception because this is only his second match in wcw after he debuted on the main event show um we were told on nitro last week that he was from an unidentified unnamed country somewhere in south america um it's actually uh pat tanaka who seems to have piled it on a bit since his orient express days in a tiger mask style hood um Conan comes out with the US title belt around his waist and carrying what Shivani describes as the Mexican heavyweight title, which after doing a bit of research turns out to have been a short-lived AAA America's heavyweight title. 
Um, El Gato starts off with martial arts kicks and arm drags, but Conan turns him inside out with a clothesline. A series of leapfrogs by Conan is ended by another thrust kick by El Gato. The crowd, however, are silent for this one. As we said, they're unfamiliar with uh, El Gato and seemingly uninspired by Conan. Um, According to Shivani on commentary, El Gato is now from Mexico, so he's moved. Um, Conan just gets a one count with his patented rolling thunder clothesline. Um, A bit of a messy sequence of moves ends with Conan hitting a sunset flip powerbomb to the floor, which elicits the first crowd response of the match. Moments later, Conan sends El Gato into the corner. El Gato tries to handstand his way over Conan, but Conan catches him in an Alabama slam type move grabs El Gato's legs, rolls forwards into a cradle for the three count to retain the belt in just six minutes and three seconds. Uh, what did you make of El Gato against Conan, James? Um, well, I, Conan was great. Um, really good fun. Not not a really small guy, not a really big guy, but technically very good. Pretty high flying. I thought it was good fun. But El Gato was absolutely awful. I mean, I could probably literally go and do some of that. Uh, I don't. I, I mean, I don't know much about Pat Tanaka, but he looked out of shape. The mask looked like it was going to fall off every time they threw him. Uh, Conan threw him around. Um, he looked. It basically looked like he just wandered in off the street. Um, I don't know whether it was pat, bad planning or whatever, but not not massively impressed with him. But obviously, Conan, um, I know, and um, yeah, he was he was really good, and it was um, and maybe he's just being squashed for it, and and he did a good job of that. So. I mean, it, it is a, a very strange concept to have a wrestler who is completely unknown and, you know, he's just a, a, a an, an independent name that you can bring in for a few shots under a mask to challenge for a US title when he's completely unknown. I mean, that, surely that you're just asking for there to be zero reaction. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I... I think the the one saying I think that we I think we use this every other show, but it really sums this one up is at least the match was short, which is <laughs> yeah. never high praise when you hit when you hear it. But yeah, for, in this instance, it's it's the one compliment you can pay. Yeah, but James is onto something because Conan, at least by this stage, is still re- relatively dynamic. You remember that mm. sort of that crazy match he had with Devon Storm. A couple oh, of months prior to where they just went out there and they did a bunch of crazy shit and they had no rhyme or reason, but you are watching it like a car wreck, especially in the mid nineties time frame, which just really just just haunts you in your tracks like that. Uh, and c- considering just how lethargic he got in those NWO Wolfpack and everything after that days, uh, yeah, li- at least he's moving around with a little bit of hustle here. But I think the best way to sum up Pat Tanaka's use here. Is uh you know give it given we've got a guest who who firmly specialised more so in in soccer you know English football than wrestling is just imagine one of those typical names those journeymen uh, that a Sam Allardyce or someone would always sign for every club they're at to come in and do a job and just to shore things up and and help avoid relegation yeah. it's just one one of the one of the old boys that clearly knows a lot of people in management and he's managed to, to get this gig and to wrangle a pay-per-view bit. And he yeah. really should have retired a few years before it. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, right. Who wants to cover the sting promo then? No. 
Are you go? Are you go? Are you going word for word on this? You gonna? No. <laughs> no. Um. What can we say apart from our old catchphrase, Liam? It was a different time. Not only was it a different time, what really got me about this is that for the most part, Sting has always been very sensible with his on-screen persona. He's never really gone out and done something that might bite him on the arse after. But this, yes, this is basically a, a promo ahead of his match on the pay-per-view against Lord Stephen Regal, where he finds about a dozen different ways to insinuate that he's homosexual, and that is a terrible, terrible thing. And, yeah, it's, it, it, in addition to just being all kinds, all layers of offensive... Going back to what we were saying earlier about how shaky the promos were, the Stinger, who is usually one of the more confident Mike men in on the roster, you'll notice that Mean Gene has had to steer him back on the the right path because he lost his train of thought because apparently yeah. he's got so much mist in his head in this fit of homophobia that it's caused <laughs> him to lose his, his train yeah. of thought. Well, yeah, I mean, Sting Sting did occasionally lose his train of thought mid-promo, not often, but yeah, occasionally, and this is is definitely one of those. But yeah, it was it was a very bizarre promo. We'll, we'll leave it at that. So, uh, match number three. So since... there's just there was one there was one phrase that I did want to mention. Yes. Um, that really, uh, like when you when you look back at these, you know, it was of its time and all that kind of thing. You see them quite regularly if you if you watch old sport generally, not just wrestling. But there was one phrase that he used, which really was was shocking, even in that context, was, um, I'm going to straighten him out. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> even back then, surely that, that that is just just beyond the pale. It's, I mean, it's, it's conversion therapy type stuff. <laughs> but incredible. What they, I mean, and actually, I think actually, obviously, we will watch this on WWE Network. I'm surprised I didn't just cut it out. It's very, very peculiar. They've trimmed a lot of things, uh, and a lot, a lot of the things they've trimmed is very much, oh, just in case it causes offence. Some of it's very trigger happy, and yet this one made it past security. Oh man! <laughs> but it's weird. It's like if you, if you, and Liam, you probably, you may know this, Dean. You if you work in, um, like in media, in publishing, there's this, there's this rule that basically, if you edit something, like if you edit comments on an article or whatever, if you delete one of them. That give, that is that tacitly means you approve the rest of them, legally. Like you're approved. So okay. It, it, it basically that's why mostly comments under articles are just left to, to they're either there's either none or they're just all left completely because people can't afford to have admins. And this is kind of like that. It's like if you're leaving that in, you're kind of you know it's a bit dodgy from WWE. But anyway, we don't want to. I'm not sure Liam's got the money for lawyers, so we probably should move on. Yeah. <laughs> if we if we go back and revisit this in a few months' time, and that promo's gone, we know we know what's happened. Yeah. Um, okay, match number three sees uh, our old because WCW pal Diamond Dallas Page against Marcus Alexander Bagwell. So DDP won the Battle Bowl ring at the last pay per view, and rather than getting the world title shot that was promised, he instead gets a match with Bagwell, who comes sprinting down to the ring before Page jumps in from behind after previously escaping the ring. Um, 
Bagwell soon turns the tables and is in control of the opening minutes of the match, including a plancher from the ring to the floor. It's only when Bagwell goes to the top rope that Page throws himself into the ropes to knock Bagwell off balance and take control of the match. Page clamps on an abdominal stretch with additional assistance from the ropes. And it's amazing to see how something so simple gets such heat from the vocal ring sides. And it's clear there, and I'm sure it's something we'll discuss in a moment, it's clear how the crowd have really embraced Paige's character. Um, Paige lands a sort of weird-looking power slam from a tombstone position to cover up what looks like a whirling head scissors gone wrong. Um, Bagwell regains the advantage with an inverted and then a regular atomic drop, which Paige sells massively. A vaulting clothesline from the apron over the ropes gets a two-count for Bagwell. They then successfully hit the head scissors pop spot they were going for earlier. Paige blocks Bagwell's attempt at a fisherman suplex by grabbing the ropes and a punch to the stomach and a diamond cutter later. It's all over and Paige wins cleanly in 9 minutes 39. James, your thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I th- th- this was... This really grabbed my attention. This like it, it felt like you know there was two proper experienced hands in the ring, you know, um, and just I really love DDP. He's a, he's a textbook heel. He's really obnoxious. He's got the horrible hair. It's just he's just fantastic. He was um, he was really good. I was quite found it quite interesting. Obviously Bagwell was was trained for a while by by Dusty Rhodes, um, and Dusty Rhodes seemed to be making a point throughout. The uh, throughout the match of pointing out everything he was doing wrong, um, which I don't know whether he was kind of reverse psychology or what he was trying to do, but um, yeah, it was it was really good fun. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I thought you know they both gave as good as they got. Um, it was nice, just nice to see. I I on I I forgot DDP existed for a bit, and then I just I saw him on the on this as I was kind of starting to research it, and um. Yeah, it's just great. It's great to see him. He's a brilliant wrestler, I think. I mean, th- this is uh, this is really where we're starting to see him evolve into a, a much more rounded character and, and work his way up the card, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, he's doing the same little mannerisms, the same sh- the same shtick that you know. Sometimes you really wish you saw more of in in select instances. Not necessarily uh, every wrestler and every wrestling promotion should stop everything they're doing right now and just tell basic stories but it'd be nice to see a, li- a little extra layer of this of this sort of mannerism and uh, it just works so well with the first few rows and that, and, and and it has a is it has a, a a cascading effect on the rest of the crowd as well um he's really good at what he does and you just as you said it you just see it start to really because he's now doing it but he's getting more wins you know his win loss records way up from where it was when Ooh. he spent years as a as a comedy heel on the lower card and he's got the finish as well and we've said about the whole we're starting to develop this whole narrative that the the diamond cutter comes out from comes out of nowhere and he's he's getting a pop every time he hits it and i know you referred on one of the watch alongs dean about how we'd see you, you want to see like the the way he'd do it from a fireman's carry or the way he'd catch it off the ropes or he'd slip out of a suplex. You want to see all these creative ones, and a lot of those are still to come. 
But what I liked about this one, even though it was a pretty basic, you know, it gives him a gives him a punch and then sets up the diamond car and hits it. It's still out of nowhere in a in a different sense, even though he hasn't done the elaborate first time ever setup. It's not the typical point of a match where the finish will be hit. There's more, usually more of a build to a crescendo. And because he's hit that, and because he's had uh, a few weeks already of building this up, and it's and it's got the pin every time, and he's won every match, even though it's just against the Hacksaw Jim Duggins, etc. Uh, he gets a nice little pop. And the funny thing is, he's, he's speaking about his gradual progress here. You guys mentioned about Bagwell and Rhodes' conduit Bagwell. Uh, we are now at the what the five-year mark of Bagwell being portrayed as a as a young rookie who makes mistakes, and that wow. heel turn really can't come fast enough for him. At the end yeah. of this calendar year, he will turn heel. We need to finally get a chance to show to show what he can do, and he'd have a good run in the in the mid to upper mid card himself when yeah. he turned heel. Yeah. Now, something I want to just go back to in this match, we we saw that. Um, in this match, there was a, a, a whirling head scissors spot that they didn't quite get first time. And rather than like drop him, Page modified things, thought on his feet and did this sort of power slam from a tombstone position. And then a little bit later on the match, they hit the spot correctly. Now, there, there was a spot. I haven't seen uh, all of the uh, AEW pay-per-view yet. I'm working my way through it slowly. But there, in the uh, tag team battle rule, there's a spot. And I saw it was mentioned on on. Twitter and it was gift a few times where um, Marco Stunt eliminates um, Evil Uno from the Dark Order and he's meant to hit a, a Hurricane Rana over the ropes to the floor. It's kind of slips off, doesn't get all of it, but then because it's the way he's being eliminated, Evil Uno pretty much just runs himself into the uh, ring post and is eliminated and that got a huge amount of criticism. What we've seen here is the ability to think on your feet and cover a mistake up so that the crowd don't know it's a mistake. Is that something that just modern wrestlers don't seem to do anymore? Uh, I think that's a bit of a blanket statement, in fairness. I think we know with a lot of these instances, it's always a case of 80, 20, 60, 40. You know, you can't put everyone in, in the same batch. But... Yeah, it would be great to see more of that sort of thing. I guess one thing I'd say maybe in Uno's defence is I can't read his mind, but I can only presume that the nature of the because they're doing the they're doing like a tag team Royal Rumble in essence. So they're doing the timed intervals and they they are really because they've got the timer up on the. The, the wall so they're not doing the thing that WWE often does is they fudge the numbers and they pretend yeah. that 90 seconds is two minutes if that suits the the, the way the match is flowing uh, they are actually keeping a, a, a strict realistic clock and I don't know if that's just making them feel the pressure to keep within their boundaries like if he's yeah. meant to go out before the next team come out and he feels he has to get over that rope fast maybe that's put a bit of uh, of, of panic laden duty onto him but yeah even then I'd, you, you've kind of got I mean what would you do in that scenario maybe just uh, stand by the ropes and mock Marco Stunt and hope one of your one of your colleagues in the match picks up Boots the hint and off. comes yeah you and, yeah, you got, well, and he's yeah. got even if he did that he'd have to keep his back to them and hope he's not left to make look like even more of a moron because he can't really do too much 
to signal to them that they he needs them to yeah. to cover it. You don't really want a come on Jeff goddammit moment, do you? If you remember that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought he could have just like flailed his arms around and Luchasaurus was right there, and obviously he's a teammate of Marco Stunts. Just flail your arms around off balance and get him to kick kick you off while you while you're trying to recover, but. But there you go. Anyway, um, we then have Jimmy Hart and the Giant backstage with Mean Gene, and Hart addresses the question of what's the deal between Jimmy Hart and Lex Luger, which <laughs> isn't quite the question we've been asking previously. But then it is time for match number four. The Cruiserweight title is on the line as Dean Malenko defends against the debuting Ray Mysterio Jr., who uh, is just 21 years of age here, and after wowing crowds in Mexico and in ECW previously, is making, as I said, his WCW debut. We're joined by Mike Tanay on commentary. Now, let's talk about his entrance music. Um, James, this, this, um, if if this is sort of a, a an intro point into '96 WCW for you, you'll be my my ideal candidate for this. Now, would would you agree that entrance music is an important part of a wrestler's presentation and you know gives people an initial impression of that person? I would indeed, Ian. Yeah. Marvelous, right? So. Uh, generally speaking, you'd you'd want you know the the ref, the music to be to be appropriate to the wrestler. Now, WCW had a habit of recycling entrance music, which it has done here because this music has been used by another wrestler. In fact, just a few months ago, in the same calendar year of 1996. Now, if you picture Rey Mysterio Jr. James, what would you say, or who would you say is is the opposite of Rey Mysterio Jr. Who who couldn't be further away from Rey Mysterio if you tried? I feel like I might get this wrong, but let's say the giant. You, do you know what? You're you're on you're you're so close. You're so very very close because it was it was actually the Loch uh, Loch Ness or Loch Ness Monster who you and I will probably know better as Giant Haystacks. Oh, classic. Yeah. So you're six foot eleven, six hundred and thirty pounds against five foot three and one hundred and forty pounds. One has a mask, one doesn't. But yes, this music never really suited Rey Mysterio. Was much more appropriate for for Loch Ness. Um, but uh, there you go. It's um, it's a it's a bit of a weird WCW thing. And and again, similar to El Gato, I suppose we've got an, a reasonably unknown masked challenger going for a, a title match. Now, obviously, this is going to be a very different scenario to El Gato. But why why have two such similar uh, situations on one pay per view? It's it's very it's very strange. Um, is the answer because WCW, Liam? Oh, when is it not? Yeah, fair enough. Um, <laughs> so the first highlight of this match is Mysterio climb onto Malenko's shoulders, spin round and arm drag him out of the ring. Uh, Malenko then grounds him with mat work and submission holds. He's working over Mysterio's left arm and elbow. Uh, Mysterio reverses a wrist lock by running up the ropes and springboarding into an arm drag. But Malenko uses the clothesline to get back in control and go back to Mysterio's arm. Um, Mike Tanay also mentions how Eddie Guerrero just won the New Japan Top of the Super Juniors tournament, beating Jushin Liger in the final, which will explain why we haven't seen Guerrero on Nitro for a while. I mean, admittedly, he was under a mask as Black Tiger, but let's not muddy the waters. Um, Malenko hoists Mysterio up into a surfboard, which he turns into a bridging cradle for a two count. It's all Malenko at this moment in time. He's dominated the match so far. 
focusing on the arm and grounding the aerial attack of Mysterio. A high-angle back suplex by Malenko only gets a two-count, and both the crowd and the commentators are appreciating Mysterio's resiliency at this point. Mysterio reverses a waist lock, and Malenko tumbles out of the ring, and a series of fast kicks from Mysterio ends with Malenko down the aisle, and Mysterio then lands a somersault plancher to the floor to a huge pop from the crowd, so he gets some serious hang time. Mysterio then throws Malenko back into the ring, lands a springboard drop kick for a two-count, a springboard hurricane runner into a pinfall attempt gets another two count. He reverses Malenko's top rope gut buster attempt into a top rope hurricane runner for another two count. He then sends Malenko into the corner, leaps up onto his shoulders to attempt another hurricane runner, but Malenko smacks him down with a forceful powerbomb, puts his feet on the ropes to get the match-winning pinfall in 17 minutes, 50 seconds. The crowd are on their feet applauding this match. James, were you on your feet? Were you applauding this one as well? Uh, no, because the kids were asleep. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, enough. theoretically, definitely, I was. It was great. I mean, you talk about El Gato, and, and I think that, I mean, the comparison of them being kind of parachuted into a pay-per-view is where the comparison ends. Because, you know, if you're going to parachute someone in, um, and, and, you know, looking at this um, in the context of today, it's a it's a it's a kind of bit of genius because Rey Mysterio is absolutely incredible um there were points during it where you know um where Dean Malenko was on the ropes and I was like is he going to do a 619 is he going to do a 619 and he he didn't which um which is a bit of a shame but um also yeah you mentioned that there was a couple of Harakaranas in there which uh they obviously didn't have a name for at that point so they just kept calling it a Frankensteiner but done better than the Steiner brothers um or done properly um yeah, it was, I mean, it was a text, but I, I thought the, they, Dean, I think, I guess it was Dean Malenko, really, but managed the kind of pace and the tempo of it really well. Like, the ground and pound stuff, I was starting to, I was starting to lose interest a little bit, and then, obviously, it switched, the pace switched up, Ray got on top, um, and, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was fant- a fantastic match, and obviously a great introduction to what someone who became one of the one of the best fighters of, a, of his generation. Yeah, I mean this this was the match, and obviously he'd done stuff in ECW, but a much smaller audience. This was really the match that announced his arrival on on the major stage in the US, and and I'm guessing a lot of these moves would at the time 1996, a lot of these moves would never have been seen by by most wrestling fans before, so it was a brand new experience for them. Yeah, I think um, I think that. I've, I've written down here in in scrawl. Um, it it felt more like the wrestling that we watch today. There were some of the matches that had gone beforehand, which felt like you know, all, they were they're not like old world of sports stuff, but they were closer to that than this is, and this is a lot closer to the stuff we're watching now. And um, yeah, and obviously with the naming of the uh, of the moves that they didn't know then uh yeah it's um they're obviously introducing loads of new stuff which which is which is always great introducing new styles from uh from different countries is is brilliant for the kind of freshness of any sport really yeah definitely it was as you say it's a water real watershed moment and i think what's great about this as well Malenko is is Malenko's like the the perfect foil and as you said you know grounding things pacing the match and it then meant that you you only got like the last few minutes, the last sort of four minutes of that match were, were where you saw all of these high-flying moves from, from Mysterio that you'd never seen before. 
and and it's also worth noting that he as you mentioned about something that he didn't do he didn't show off all of the moves he could do in one go it, it's something that you see a lot of of, of uh, younger inexperienced wrestlers do where they they try and show everything they can do in one match and then come the second match they they haven't got anything else to 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 show show off to fans basically I mean, for for me, the impression I got from all those points you guys are making is that this match wasn't necessarily intended to be a showcase of their new acquisition, Rey Mysterio, as much as it was he was just a suitable guy for the new Cruiserweight champion, because this belt had pretty much not long been introduced. You could say maybe resumed, given that we had the, you remember all the, events we covered in 92 with the light heavyweight title then. Uh, And for for me, with with all the groundwork early on, and as you said, he didn't show off everything he could do. uh, It's still a great match, but I don't think they realised until after this match was said and done just what they had on their hands. Because it certainly didn't seem to be sculpted in a manner that was to be right. He's our he's our new asset. We are going to mark him. You think uh, when when he first debuted in WWE, they they straight away put the mask back on him because he didn't have the mask. They put the mask on him, did the fireworks. He was the focal point of the episode of, of SmackDown that he debuted on. Uh, he won the match. It, the whole thing was a was a base for him to to jump and fly around like no one else can, and they made it very clear that they were backing him. I think the backing of Rey Mysterio came after this performance and a couple of others Ooh. where he, he continued to be utterly, utterly dazzling. But I can just imagine the agents watching this backstage thinking, actually, we might have something here. Either that or thinking, why is this shit he's doing? Because you never quite know how people are going to think. Grab a hold, son. What are you doing <laughs> flip-flopping around? <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it was, it was, as I said, it, you know, the real it felt it felt like a watershed moment, definitely. Um, okay, we've now got the Lex Luger promo that we mentioned earlier. So um, he's backstage with Mean Gene. He sounds very somber, very serious. He's not shouting and screaming. He's saying that nobody like the Giant has ever been in wrestling before. But he says he's he's human. He's he's not invincible. So um, you you had some thoughts on this, James? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's like throughout the history of wrestling, there's giants, so I don't know what you're talking <laughs> yes. about. Um, uh, but yeah, second of all, it was just it was so it was so robotic, and uh, he was either completely winging it because he kept stumbling over his words, or he was reading a script and he's not very good at reading. But it wasn't it just it just wasn't great at all. Um, uh, I'm, yeah, he's a. I just remember watching him as a kid, like. I don't know, maybe 10, 11, something like that. And I was absolutely petrified of him. Like when he came out, it was so scary, such an imposing figure. And he just looked a bit like he's just, I think he should probably just stick to being in the ring because he's so good at that. But this promo wasn't great. Yeah, I mean, he, he 
was never known as a great stick man, was he, Luger? But I'll be honest, when this promo first started, I was kind of digging the vibe, as you said, with the with the serious tone. He was talking calmly, and I, I think that's a lost start in itself sometimes to to the the right time and place to cut a promo, even for a big main event or a grudge match. If you do it in a in a calm, somber voice, it can speak louder than shouting, and it seems to be going the right way. But then, as as James referenced, the the, the the stammers started to come, the uncertainty started to come, he's hesitating a bit more, he's repeating over things, a few more cliches are creeping in there, and you can see why he could never just stick the landing, even if he had a good starting point, which he did. Mm. Yeah, he's as you say, never never renowned for it, and we've, we've seen from some Nitro watch-alongs where our own conversation goes off track because he's lost our interest. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Talking of, um, talking of what we've, uh, witnessed in previous Nitro watch longs match. Number five is big Bubba with Jimmy Hart against John Tenter. And, um, you remember how we said that for the last couple of weeks after cutting half of John Tenter's hair off, Bubba had uh, had somehow got hold of some of this hair and was throwing it around. He'd always have this magic supply of hair. It was driving yeah. me crazy. Well, guess what, Liam? Bubba's still got some hair in his hands that he's cutting and throwing yeah. about. He's been raiding the barber shops of Baltimore again. And you can see that, you know, he's this big six foot menacing dude dressed like a biker. You can just imagine him going into that that uh, Baltimore barbershop, just a, just a stone's throw away from the Babe Ruth Museum. And he's gone in there and he's basically threatened them into giving them the, the hair off the floor. And they've probably turned around and gone, dude, we don't want it. It's free, have it. And he's probably gone, yeah, that's that's what I thought and threatened them anyway. And he walked out with a big bag of hair. <laughs> that's the way it happened in my head anyway. And if this was happening in modern day wrestling, we'd have a YouTube sub-series documenting all this and it would be amazing amazing yes and then any leftover hair at the end of the feud could be used to stuff a small toy for a child no um, no sell it no, it could do the carny thing sell it at the merch stands money to be made baby allegedly john tenter's hair allegedly five pounds a bag <laughs> um so yes yeah, so john tenter comes down in his uh mishmash ring attire of blue singlet top and long black tight no entrance music half his hair long half his hair short um it, it looks, I mean, I suppose it's supposed to look weird, but it does. It looks weird. To me, it looks like someone couldn't be asked to finish off a creator wrestler on a video game. But, and um, remember, he had this meltdown before Britney Spears did. This is very true. He's not a shark. He's a man. <laughs> um, the match starts on the floor as Bubba jumps tenter. There's literally no crowd heat, but I guess this match is in the position to bring the crowd down after the last match. Um, Bubba drops Tenter with some big right hands as he passes the foreign object he was using to Jimmy Hart as referee Nick Patrick fruitlessly frisks him. Uh, Bubba scoots under the bottom rope, that move he's always very good and smooth at. While Tenter is in the corner, he pulls him off his feet, smacks Tenter's knee into the ring post. Bubba is now in control, which he emphasizes with a big belly-to-back suplex. Bubba then climbs to the top rope with a cross-body block, but Tenter catches him and power slams Bubba for the three count in five minutes, 24 seconds, while Jimmy Hart dances on the apron with his back to the action, thinking that Bubba has won. Tenter then grabs the scissors from Jimmy Hart and cuts a big chunk of Bubba's goatee beard off. Uh, I suppose it was it was brief, wasn't it, James? Could we be any more, anything kind that we can say on this one? Well, uh, not really, but I... <laughs> 
yeah, it, it was one of like I was I was looking through it and I was like, uh, maybe this this is definitely my ignorance. Um, I was like, Big Bubba and John Tenter, I have no idea who these people are. What's go- ah earthquake and Big Boss Man? Right, I'm fine. I got that. So uh, yeah, and I mean, yeah, it was it wasn't it wasn't great. Um, I it, I mean, can you can you shed some light on why there was no is was there no entrance music on purpose? I just assumed yeah. that there was some sort of rights issue that WWE had that they didn't pay for John Tenter's entrance music. They, no, that was on this, purpose. Why? Yeah, this was where um, he had. Well, he'd he'd come into he'd come into WCW a couple of years previously um, as his Avalanche, wasn't he, Liam? Was that the first yes, name he had? Yes, that was the yeah. So around the same time frame, you had both these guys trying desperately to be their well-known WWE gimmicks without being sued. And yeah, John Tentra's Avalanche did a slightly better job because Bubba Rogers was the boss. And then you'd have Tony Schiavone saying, yeah, here comes the boss. Man, is he big. Just to really hammer it home. So that that was a blatant red flag. He was almost immediately told to stop doing it. Big boss man is intellectual property of WWE. Um, Avalanche, there was some, there, there's definitely some some likenesses to Earthquake. I think he lasted a little bit longer before they turned him into the shark in the Dungeon of Doom. And this was where this storyline happened. They deemed that Shark was a weak link in their faction, even though they were all getting trounced by Hulk Hogan. You can't really have a weak link when you're all getting your ass kicked in a nine-on-one. Um, but they've decided it was all his fault. They've kicked him out. And Big Bubba Rogers, who's not long joined the stable, has shaved half his head to boot. And that's where he did that infamous promo on Nitro. Yes, so, yeah, a couple of weeks ago on Nitro, he had... A kind of uh, a bit of yeah the the equivalent of the Britney Spears breakdown. He basically said, yeah, was I'm I'm not a shark. I'm a I'm not an avalanche. I'm not a shark. I'm a man. My name is John Tenter. So it was like he was he was kind of like the man with no gimmick at this point. Hence the yeah, no entrance music and the mishmash outfit. So it was it was intentional. But I I think it's fair to say it. it it hadn't caught fire with the fans. And, and yeah, you make a really good valid point, James, because, you know, what I, I was thinking, I actually put in my notes here, imagine if this was Big Boss Man v Earthquake. And it, it just goes to show WCW really struggled to create characters like their opposition could. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was really peculiar. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, why they didn't just get some generic music or anything for him to walk down rather than um, rather than just nothing. But yeah, it was. And yeah, I mean, uh, I mentioned before we started recording that I did watch um, uh, WrestleMania 12. And I think you can see like the character creation uh, on some and some of these guys in WCW left a little bit to be desired. Definitely. Definitely, yeah. See, um, I'm I'm gonna sound crazy here, but for some reason, having covered this feud on the Nitro Watchalongs, and they had the blow-off grudge match. The was it the 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 Carson City Silver Dollar match? Yes, Carson City. Yes. Yeah, with a with a roller quarters hanging off a gigantic pole in the corner. That was at Bash at the Beach. The following month's pay for you, but we covered that last year. Um, and for some reason, this these two feuding with each other. I don't know if it's the 
the way that Jimmy Hart admittedly hilariously was dancing to celebrate the finish. I love that old Hillmanger shtick yeah. that he thinks it's going his guy's way and he counts the three and he celebrates. He turns around, it's actually the other guy who's won and now he's got his hands on him. Don't know if it's that or the fact that, yes, they did indeed keep it short and sweet mercifully, or the fact that I do have a soft spot for both of these guys because, like James, I remember, and you as well, Dean, I remember when it was the all was right with the world and it was the the baby faced big boss man against the Hill Earthquake, you know. Oh, one of my favourite shows was always Battle Royal at the Royal Albert Hall in 91. I remember these two having a, a a match that was better than it should have been. But there's something about these two that I, I, I like it way more than I should. And this was five minutes of guff to carry things on. Even though the, the babyface actually won clean, we'd still get the blow-off that we admitted was a, was a bit better than it should have been at Bash of the Beach. But Ooh. for some reason, I seem to have a fair bit of time for these two schmucks. Bless them. <laughs> They're solid hands. They're definitely solid yeah, hands. Yeah, I, I can I can tolerate their their crappy matches a lot more than I can the crappy matches of other wrestlers and random wrestlers. Okay, well, um, in that next we're back to Mean Gene. He informs us that the Macho Man has been reinstated to WCW after his recent suspension, where he had gone crazy um, as Ric Flair had been spending his divorce. Money that uh, Miss Elizabeth had been uh, on had been banquet awarded. tables. On, on imagine, banquet imagine tables. the bill Macho Man got from banquet banquet tables are us with uh, with fancy glasses of champagne and a butler. Um, so Gene is with Steve McMichael and Kevin Green. They're accompanied by their respective wives. Um, it's not the greatest promo ever. There's lots of shouting, but what do you expect? Um, Randy Savage comes into shot. He redresses the promo balance. Um, it looks like they're off for their match, but hold up, lads, you're not on yet because we have now got our Fool's Count Anywhere match, Chris Benoit against Kevin Sullivan, accompanied by Jimmy Hart. Um, we're told by Dave Penzer that there will be two referees assigned to this match to keep track of the action. Sullivan power walks his way to the ring, but he's intercepted midway down the aisle by Benoit. They make their way to ringside, chopping each other before Benoit is thrown over the guardrail and they start fighting in the crowd. They're going up the stairs, higher and higher into the stand. They get to the top of the stand. They end up in the men's toilets. Well, at least it's the men's, I suppose. Um, Benoit gets the cubicle door slammed into his head three times. Doug Dillon just holding the crowd back in the toilet, which I bet he never thought he'd have to see one day. Uh, Dusty loses his shit as he spots a woman in the gents. There's a woman in the gents, Tony, taking in the action. Not like that. Um, security looks like they're really not enjoying this. Um, they finally leave the bogs. They work their way back down to the stands again. Benoit tumbles down the steps. Um, they haven't actually made it into the ring yet. Um, they're back fighting at ringside. Um, the, yeah, the match at this point has been going around about five minutes. Um, Benoit whips Sullivan into the guardrail, pushes him over into the crowd. He gets a table out from under the ring, slides it into the ring. Um, Benoit is finally actually in the ring. He gets whipped into the table that's propped up in the corner, but it doesn't break. Benoit then sets the table up on the top rope, but he ends up on the table himself. Benoit counters things, superplexes Sullivan off the table. It's basically a more secure version of a superplex as you've got more footing. But anyway, he gets the win for Benoit in 9 minutes, 58 seconds. Post-match, Benoit continues to attack Sullivan before Arn Anderson runs in and pulls Benoit off. Again, not like that. Um, 
before, uh, but Sullivan then attacks, sorry, Anderson then attacks Sullivan himself to a huge pop. Benoit and Arn stomp a mud hole in Sullivan before leaving together as the rest of the Dungeon of Doom run in to save their leader. The horsemen are reunited. This one was kind of a bit crazy. I mean, I, I remember this from when it was uh, when it first aired. It's definitely one to stick in the memory bank. I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. I, de- I must say, like, uh, you know, I was aware of, you know, Chris, Chris Benoit's history and, you know, how he died and, and that situation. But I didn't actually realise that. So it, he's, kind of, he's wrestling in this match against, uh, to the, with, against the person who, whose, whose wife he later marries and then kills. There's some, there was something quite, um, I don't know. It's, it was quite, I found it quite almost distracting watching it, knowing what, go like, this is, this is 96. I think he, she divorces Sullivan in 97, gets together with Benoit in 2000, and then, uh, and well, you know, whatever, what happens next happens. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I, I thought it was a great match. I thought Dusty Rhodes was 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 great fun on the comms, um, but it was, yeah, it just, I felt like it overshadowed everything. But maybe that's just because I haven't looked at this story for so long, and I guess you guys know it a bit more. But it was some something quite quite sad about the whole thing, to be honest. No, I know what you mean. It is it is very. It feels very odd seeing them together. Um, because yeah, because obviously we're watching with the with the, the benefit of hindsight. I th- I think because what what actually happened with them was that um, they they must have carried the feud on, wouldn't they, Liam? Because I know Absolutely, basically the, yeah. the the crux of it was that they did a story where woman left Sullivan for Benoit, and then to keep the angle going, he told them to like travel together, and they then ended up getting together in in real life legitimately so um he booked his own divorces the dirt basically said at yeah the time. yeah yeah because i mean at this point woman as she's she's known in in wcw she is still uh, part of rick flair's entourage so obviously there mm. must come a point where we haven't come to yet where where she get she's managing uh her real life husband but well but yeah no but you no, she doesn't actually manage Sullivan on screen per se. But given that the very start, and I'll go into a detailed thing about this after. But considering the very start of this on off on off on off on off thing between uh, Hill factions, the Horsemen, and the Dungeon of Doom, you remember the initial start was the thing between Sullivan and Pillman, and obviously yeah. Pillman did his old "I respect you, Booker man" work shoot left. Considering that's the sort of confusing crap they're wheeling out, trying to make people think, oh, is it is this real? Is this fake? Because it's always great when you basically admit that the rest of your show's fake, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. So when it's they're doing all, when they're doing all that, it basically tips the cap that yeah, Sullivan is blatantly going to try and do this work shoot garbage again. And in the ultimate of ironies, it ended up being the work shoot that turned into the shoot of him losing his wife. Anyway, I'm sorry to bring that. Sorry to bring the energy down, but it 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 really yeah. Maybe I'm just tired and emotional because of lockdown. But it's uh, yeah, it really overshadowed what I thought was actually. I mean, subjectively, it was a good match, but um, yeah, it's, it was just really. It almost felt voyeuristic watching it, to be honest. No, I, I think you're you're right, James. In that, well, you know, I, we we 
maybe should even consider like giving a heads up anytime we cover something Benoit related on this. And it happens a lot because he was in WCW for a lot of years. Uh, it, it does bring up that thing of, you know, having to cover his match. And, and because the body of his work was often so good, you find yourself in that situation of, oh, this this is really good. And then you remember, then you remember exactly what, what Benoit did. And it's like, oh, wait. And you find yourself stuck in that vortex, don't you? And it happens almost every time. And we really have to... To, to suck it up to to keep the general context of of what we're covering we, we it's not easy but we try and numb ourselves to it and and crack on with it but you but you're absolutely right i mean i i, st- I still remember writing the uh i did the yahoo piece for for the 10th anniversary of his passing in 2017 and that did a lot of you know there's a lot of traffic and comments and because like even outside the the wrestling realm, everyone knew what happened. It was mainstream yeah. stuff. It was shocking stuff, and it was absolutely yeah. earth shattering. I, yeah. yeah, I remember. I remember you writing that. Um, I, I guess it was more. It was more hard hitting in this because it was against Kevin Sullivan and and woman was on on this pay per view as well, which we'll get to later. So it all felt really kind of um, I don't know close mm. close to the bone, I guess. But anyway. But yeah, this this match, yeah, it's 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 ahead of its time. So of all of all the cutting edge things that Kevin Sullivan was trying to do, the work shoot storylines, the blurring the lines, that's that's always garbage. As as another head writer at WCW would really prove in a few years, bro. Um, but this this type of match, yeah, you didn't see a lot of this. And obviously, there's a there's a heavy ECW leaning, but they've brought it to the mainstream here. Uh, you spot on James in that Dusty Rhodes' inane commentary actually has a, a real comedic value here. And there is indeed, he was right, there is indeed a lady in the, in the, in the men's... <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, that, that, that is worth checking out. But one thing I really want to bring into context here was the actual storyline that Arn Anderson will also touch upon in his promo later on, or maybe straight after this. I can't remember exactly when. But um, as we've covered the... The Nitro Watchlongs, Dean, you remember this whole storyline, especially because they've had to abandon the Pillman situation of it, which really seemed like Pillman, one of the four horsemen, seemed hell bent on being that, uh, that, that just that source from within that ruins it, you know, the, the poison pill. Uh, and, and his erratic behavior looks destined to destroy the horsemen where they're kind of keeping him in check at first, but Arn Anson's always there with a, with a stiff slap across his mouth. But then when he gets himself in trouble with the likes of Paul Orndorff, you know, the horseman attacked Paul Orndorff because Pillman is a horseman. And it seemed that it was destined to lead to a thing with fellow Hill faction, the Dungeon of Doom, uh, where Pillman was causing this trouble and bringing the horseman into it. And it was going to lead to, to Pillman just absolutely destroying the group. Then he's gone. And as we've seen from some of the Nitros, it really feels like they're trying to shoehorn in the other. So you you could say at this stage, you've got two senior horsemen, Flair and Anderson, two charter members there from the start in the 80s. And you've got two relatively new recruits, Pillman and Benoit, two up-and-comers being being put into the group. And they're trying to shoehorn the other junior member, Benoit, into this storyline. And the whole thing of it, that from what Sullivan was saying in these really awkward uh, staring at a cue card promos on Nitro and stuff, was that 
they are the Dungeon of Doom and Kevin so in particular. You know, he's he's had an on-off situation with a horseman, but he kind of respects Flair and Anton and the history of it, and they go way back. And he he said in the promo, didn't he, Dean? He knows that Hulk Hogan's on the horizon, and there's other guys like Randy Savage, and he knows he needs some backup against those forces of good. Um, and, and so he wants the Flares and the Ansons to be on good terms with him. But he doesn't like Benoit. He thinks Benoit is another pillman. He's not good. He's a junior. He's not good enough to earn his stripes. And the way Anderson was going in the storyline was, well, actually, Sullivan's got a bit of a point. You're on your own, Benoit. We've got this to deal with, with the the football players. And he's kind of left him like that. And everyone's starting to think that, Anson, who's got a bit of a history of, of of turning on people like Dustin Rhodes and joining other groups, you know, he's been in the stud stable and dangerous alliance. People thinking, could Arn Anson actually be in league with Kevin Sullivan here? And when we get that finish, as Arn really nicely ties up at the end, even though the road there was a bit confusing and bumpy, was that they left Benoit to it because this was his initiation. He was to have this match, this lawless match with the dangerous Kevin Sullivan in Sullivan's environment. You'll see he jumped Sullivan from the start. They were brawling all over the place. And even though Arn Anderson came out afterwards, he won the fight clean. It was one-on-one. Benoit got the win. He proved himself. And as he's kept beating on Sullivan, again showing a little bit of that horseman edge, Arn comes out, acts like he's he, he's helping that Sullivan and puts the boots to him because at that moment with that victory, Benoit has proven himself as a horseman. So I, I did like, even though it was a bit rough getting there, the, the end game and Arn Anson tying it up nicely at the end, I thought it, it made the storyline worthwhile when it could have easily been a lost cause. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's... It's a it's a long convoluted story, but but hey, it's kept us amused during our watch-alongs, hasn't it? It was like, do you remember the aces and eights in TNA, where oh, it got Christ. a bit it got a bit naff at times, and it was meandering. You're thinking, right, get rid of these, and then they did the thing with Buddy Ray at the end, and then they had Buddy Ray cut these promos that that actually made sense of every little thing, even the crappy things, and suddenly it was a great storyline again. This this was like that. They managed to pay it off and, and, and summarise it in such a way that made even the crappy parts seem worthwhile in, in retrospect. Fair enough. Right, so um, after the, the Horseman promo that we've, we've referenced there, <laughs> it's time for Lord Stephen Regal with Jeeves against Sting. And this is probably the highest profile match of Regal's WCW career. Um, Sting starts off fast, whipping Regal into the corner, flipping him to the floor, backdropping him onto the blue mats outside. But Regal soon takes over with a few forearm uppercuts, changing the pace of the match to suit his own style as the crowd chant USA. Um, Sting takes back control, so Regal goes to the floor to argue with fans to cut off Sting's momentum, something that the commentators fail to notice. Regal's facial expressions, as ever, are absolutely immense, but I suppose what else would you expect? He then locks on a quarter Nelson with Sting sitting on the canvas and is starting to wear Sting down, getting a couple of two counts for his efforts. Sting then hoists Regal up to a vertical base and lands a back suplex, but Regal is up first and still on the offense. The match is mainly being fought in Regal's style and at his pace, but the crowd don't seem too interested in it, despite it featuring Sting. 
Um, the match then returns to a vertical base, and as soon as that happens, Sting is back on top, clamping on an abdominal stretch, so Regal takes it down to the mat again. It's a very clear storyline running through the match. Um, Sting then explodes into life with a drop kick and a clothesline, but Regal soon turns the tables with an awkward-looking butterfly suplex off the middle rope, followed by the Regal stretch in the middle of the ring. The commentators are selling that this could be the end, but the crowd aren't buying it, even though Regal himself can't believe that Sting didn't submit. He then gets Sting back to his feet, takes him to a corner, reigning in forearm smashes to Sting's jaw, but a slap to the face wakes Sting up, and he no-sells Regal's blows, and now Sting's raining down the shots on Regal. He throws Regal into the corner, Regal raises his knees to block the Stinger splash, but then Sting counters Regal's charge with a backdrop. He runs over, grabs Regal's legs, locks on the Scorpion Deathlock in the middle of the ring. The crowd come alive at this point as Regal submits and Sting wins a match that Regal dominated in 16 minutes and 30 seconds. So a clash of styles for sure. But what did you think of this match, James? Yeah, I think it was decent. I mean, I it's not the best match I've seen Sting in, that's for sure. It, I think I thought the tempo wasn't dissimilar to... To the Malenko, um, ma- the Malenko Mysterio match earlier, in yeah. terms of you know, there's a lot of the ground and pound stuff again. The difference is that I think um, Stephen Regal, I've got, to, I've got to not stay, say William Regal. Stephen Regal is um, is a lot more charismatic than Malenko is. So, um, so watching him doing that stuff and slow it down and kind of uh, take the take the wind out of Sting's sails was quite entertaining. I found it quite entertaining. I've always found. I've always found him really, really entertaining, and that character. Um, I mean, I th- the whole thing about the fact that you know he's from Blackpool and he's he's, he's titled from Blackpool, so, and yeah, he's it's not exactly a place that's famous for very very upper class people walking <laughs> yeah, around. Yeah, aristocrats. So, in, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, if they said he's from Chelsea or whatever, then maybe. But um, I, I mean, I think I think he's great fun. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it, I think it was a very character-led match rather than a, a necessarily a great technical match. But I thought, I thought Regal, Regal was really good. And then, you know, I think they left it to the end, and then we got sort of a block stinger splash, and then the Scorpion Deathlock, which is what everyone wanted to see. And uh, so I think everyone was happy at the end of the match. It wasn't great, but it wasn't awful either. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it was a good, clear storyline. But it also reminds me of um, there was a tweet that Regal put out just a few days ago. Um, but it's something I've heard him say before on, on podcasts, which is make sure that everything you do means something, or don't bother doing it at all. And I think that's certainly the case here with everything that he's doing in this match. Yeah, for sure. I think. Um, no, I mean, I. Th- I yeah, there was, there was, it was very clear. I think there were obviously two very experienced professionals. There was no, there was no botches. There were, it was, it was just, the whole thing was went went to a T, uh, and it was a nice kind of bridge to the kind of the two supposed sort of top billing matches that were that were happening next. So yeah, it was decent. You got to see a superstar like Sting. Got to see his finishing moves. So yeah, not a problem. Do you, is it fair to say that no one in that venue thought that Regal would win and weren't expecting him to win? 
Absolutely, yeah. I think this is part of the problem. It's funny how you guys mentioned Dean Malenko just a minute ago, because this does remind me a little bit of one of the things we've enjoyed about the Nitro watchalongs running up to this, Dean, is that they've had some good matchups, and a lot of them involved Sting wrestling, intriguing mid-card mm. guys. One of our favourites that we always refer back to was Sting versus Dean Malenko in what was just a great six-minute TV match. And this, for me, is essentially them attempting to recapture that here because they're, they're, they're giving Sting a mix and match opponent, someone fresh. He's giving them enough of the offense to portray them as a threat, uh, and he's ultimately getting the win. The problem is, is it's on pay-per-view, and it's twice the length, if not longer. And yeah. as a result, people are kind of just waiting for the inevitable. And that's where it struggles a little bit. If we were to go strictly on snowflakes or star ratings, we could sit as purists and rate this as purists. We'd say it's a very good match. But if they're not if they're not grabbing the, the crowd, and these two guys know, as we've referenced, they know how to interact with the crowd. They're extremely charismatic in their own unique ways. But if they're struggling to it here, then then something's not been thought through well enough, and and I think it really is a square peg in a round hole kind of match. Yeah, definitely. It's and as James said, you know, character is character driven, it's storyline driven. There didn't seem to be a huge amount of storyline to this, apart from two opposites meeting. Well, we saw the thing on Nitro, didn't we? It was only a couple of episodes yeah. before where. Stephen Regal suddenly decided, right, no one's taking me seriously enough. I want Sting. And that was the storyline. Mm. Yeah. Just, um, could have been. And, 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 and the sad thing is that I, I think, you know, I said this was probably the highest profile match of his, his WCW career, wasn't it? It's definitely up there. One of the other ones may be the match that kind of started to lead him towards this, which was the parking lot fight with Fit Finley on Nitro. Yeah. Only about yeah. two months before this. That that was obviously a big eye catcher, and he's, he's come out looking really good in that. So maybe they thought, right, we could do. He's got enough stock to feed him to a star here. So yeah, yeah around this around this time, he'd been at WCW for a few years at this point, but he had a good '96. But I think yeah. it was there, there was nowhere really for him as a heel when the New World Order came around, because there were there were much bigger and better heels than him in the pecking order. I know he's, he's good at what he does, but on the totem pole, there were there were bigger entities such as the the giant and the Horsemen, who all fell down because of the NWO. So someone like Lord Stephen Regal is absolutely going to struggle. Yes, yeah, definitely. Okay, um, it is uh, it is now time for one, one of our feature matches. It is the big tag team match as Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, accompanied by Bobby Heenan, Woman and Elizabeth, take on Steve McMichael and Kevin Green, accompanied by Randy Savage, Deborah McMichael and Tara Green. In typical WCW fashion, they start playing Flair's entrance music and the on-screen graphic announces the match before Michael Buffer can even start reading his intros out. The music suddenly stops and then restarts again. The horsemen come out with their entourage. Um, Coach Heenan is conspicuous by his absence, but then is introduced separately by Buffer. The legends of the gridiron come out, accompanied by their wives. Deborah also has Pepe the dog with her, finally getting his pay-per-view bonus and wearing some kind of silly hat. Um, that poor dog. We we did, when, when Steve McMichael was on commentary for Nitro, 
every week that poor dog would be dressed up in some bizarre outfit. That poor, uh, poor dog. But he's getting his pay-per-view bonus now, Liam. He's, he's earned it. One he's would hope so. I hope they're not stiffing him on the pay-per-view. I, I hope so, yeah. Um, Randy Savage gets his own entrance music and uh, intro, of course. Um, now, I know nothing about American or NFL football, so I'm presuming that their tights are in the colours of the teams they played for? I believe, I believe so, yeah. Yes. But Jay, yes. Jay, I was going to say James would actually have the, the massive line because he's a big NFL fan. Yes, yeah, no, they 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 were in the they were in the tights and and obviously the the wives had the jackets, um, yeah, and I mean, Steve McMichael is a, a massive a massive hero of mine. I'm a Bears fan and he played for the Bears for for 12 years and he was a defensive tackle in for the '85 Bears team, which is the the, the greatest defense of all time in NFL history and won the Super Bowl. So. Um, which got me into into the sport in the first place. So oh yeah. wow, so this big, is big big hero. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, I'm sure you'll get onto the match, but he was really good at NFL and not so much at wrestling. <laughs> actually, to be honest, the the, the storyline, uh, and I won't spoil it, but the whole thing around, you know, him going to the Packers for a season was was really. It's really uh, it was really interesting the way they they did that, and that that was completely true about him, him taking the money but anyway ah i see so that'd be lost on me that bit right that makes, well, it makes sense. so they're, they're it's like i don't know celtic or rangers or tottenham or arsenal or liam charlton and i don't know someone else. um but yeah, yeah so he he's went he was 12 years at the bears and then got a serious injury and went to the packers anyway and and took a load of money from them hardly played and then retired right and, Said he stiffed them again, which was which which was great as a Bears fan. Ah, I see. Yeah, I was I was actually going to reference. I might as well bring it in now because it has more context. But I was going to say for our, for our British listeners who aren't so NFL savvy, I was gonna I was gonna liken the way this match goes. Imagine if it was footballers. But the footballers were, to, because James is a Tottenham fan, I'll say imagine the 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 soccer team is the team of um, Ledley King and Sol Campbell. And for a Tottenham fan, when you explain what happens at the end of this, it would it wouldn't just be some random swerve. It'd be oh, that makes sense. When a certain one of them takes the money and turns oh, the other one. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes, to um, to their credit or to WCW's credit, they're also wearing proper full wrestling gear, including matching boots and knee pads. So they look the part. Um, we start with Michael V. Anderson. There's lots of stalling, which is to be expected, as you've got to make every moment count. Uh, a three-point stance charge-off is obviously won by McMichael, who knocks Anson flying. A second one sees Anson drop toe-hold McMichael. Um, a second rope flying shoulder tackle shocks Anderson. He gets sent to the floor, and Savage gets a shot on him to a big pop. Um, it's only at this point in the match, Liam, that I realise there's no banquet table out here. It's an absolute travesty, isn't it? I- I'm worried we might have seen the last of it, and if so, I I might quit the podcast in protest. Well, it's, it'd be regrettable, but understandable. We'll, we'll just have to wait until our next watch long to see if the uh, if the banquet table returns. So uh, Green gets tagged in, so does Flair. And, and at this point, I'm thinking, just imagine your professional wrestling debut match is against 
Ric Flair. Um, Flair challenges Green to get into the three-point stance like McMichael did, and as soon as he does so, Flair kicks him in the head, which I think we can say, Liam, epic shithousery. Oh, it was, that, that was... I, I had a big laugh-out-loud moment. I've watched this match several times before, but that one will always get me. He, he was doing the proper... the posing, wasn't he? And, 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 and squaring up to him, and, oh, let's do this football style, and then just kicks him in the face. <laughs> um, what backs, a douche. What a brilliant move. He backs Green into the corner for a few chops and punches. Green then turns the tables with some shoulder charges. Flair loses his temper, stomps down the aisle, only to be cut off by Savage, who lands a few blows and throws Flair back into the ring face-to-face with Kevin Green. Um, Michael and Flair then face off. Um, but Michael actually gets Flair in the figure four leg lock and Green does the same to Anderson, but she's going to get involved. Woman claws at the eyes of Michael to get him to release the hold. I was worried um, about her for a second. Yes. I mean, ev- every time we've seen her on Nitro recently, she's had to interfere in some capacity. So, um, so She must have been getting well. withdrawal symptoms at that stage. She'd gone she five whole minutes in the match without cheating. I know, all flirting with Mean Gene. Oh, um, this then prompts the NFL wives to get into an argument in the aisle with the woman in Elizabeth, although you'd never know they're arguing from Elizabeth's blank expression and complete lack of body language, but there you go. So all the women have now left the ringside area. We have just Heenan and Savage at ringside, the two wise old owls who can help the NFL, sorry, the NFL guys if it all starts falling apart at any point. Um, Flair's now taking over on McMichael. Heenan even gets a kick in the ribs to uh, Mon- while Mongo is on the floor. Anson tags in, and they have singled out McMichael in that classic tag team strategy. Finally, Green gets to make the hot tag. He shoulder blocks Anson before a wayward body slam on Flair and a more controlled one on Anson has the advantage swinging to the NFL team. Green celebrates getting Flair down into the canvas but gets chopped block- chop blocked from behind by Anson for his troubles. Green is selling big. Flair's working on the leg, getting ready for the figure four. He clamps it on Green near the centre of the ring, and Flair's then getting additional leverage from Anderson before Savage intervenes to stop him. Chris Benoit then makes an appearance, attacking Savage at ringside. Um, with Green still in the figure four, and it's daft that he's not submitting at this point, Woman and Elizabeth come back down the aisle alongside a smiling Deborah McMichael, who's got changed and is now wearing a pink evening gown. Elizabeth is carrying a briefcase. Deborah then takes that, shows it to her husband. It's got a four horseman T-shirt and a ton of cash inside it. Green reverses the figure four, sticks his head through the ropes to ask his partner what's going on. But Michael then clobbers Green over the back of the head with the briefcase. Flair drapes an arm over him to make the cover and get the pinfall in 20 minutes and 51 seconds. Savage then tries to attack Flair, but McMichael throws him off. Flair, Anson and Benoit start stomping Savage before McMichael picks Savage up, holds his arms behind his back, gives Flair a free shot with the briefcase. He puts on the Horseman t-shirt and in that moment overtakes Paul Roma as the worst Four Horsemen member ever. He even shakes Heenan's hand and I don't know about you, Liam, but I can't wait to see what Nitro's like the following day. Yeah, to an extent, but you know what? I don't think he's behind Paul Roma at all because I think the the thing the thing about Steve McMichael in wrestling was always established as the as the Twitter account that's our Mongo establishes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. horrific in ring, absolutely. But 
as far as his presence and his mic skill, and we've said about you know WCW seems to be alarmingly short on on confident, decent mic talkers at this point. Uh, in in an outside the ring perspective, he's he's spot on, and because he's a high profile football player, he fits that billing of the horseman being a it never grows in huge numbers, but is the select for it's the elite. And even though he's not an elite wrestler, he's definitely an elite personality. He's elite in his own realm. So he has that over Roma, at least. Okay. No, fair fair point. Um, okay, so James, you have you have witnessed the tag match with two, two wrestlers that you greatly admire and two NFL players you greatly admire. How, how did you enjoy this one? Yeah, uh, well, one I admire. Uh, oh. <laughs> Kevin Green, uh, I don't really know much about, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously these two guys, the NFL players, were put in with with Flair and, and Arn Anderson uh, and, you know, and having a macho man around as well, just the most experienced, technically adept wrestlers they could find to kind of carry them through. And they, they kind of, they kind of do to a certain extent. Um, I thought, I think Kevin Green overdid it for a while. Um, and as Liam mentioned, uh, the figure four went on for about 10 minutes and he didn't tap from it. It was a bit peculiar. Um, yeah. I mean, it's not, it was, a, it was a, it's an interesting match. And I think, yeah, the, 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 the ending was quite good, but obviously the in-ring action was, wasn't great. Ric Flair's always brilliant, so it's always great seeing him. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was good fun to see it. It was nice to see Steve McMichael because I've not seen him in I've not seen him wrestling before, so um, that was that was good to see. I mean, yeah, it wasn't obviously. We I don't think anyone was expecting a, a five star classic, but it it was it was passable. It was entertaining, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I mean. It, yeah, I mean, it was good. I think if you like, if you weren't a wrestling fan and you didn't really care about the technical stuff, then um, it, as, as as sports entertainment goes, it, it was pretty entertaining. Um, so, I mean, that's that's all you can ask, really. It was it was quite silly, but there's nothing wrong with that. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was fun. Um, I, I guess that's all you can say about it, really. And, and I guess Liam, this would kind of um, pave the way for. WCW to do a lot more of these. I'm thinking of um, Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone in their tag match, and then Jay Leno in being involved, and Master P, and they, they seem to be an awful lot of celebrities getting involved after this. Yeah, and to be honest, not too many people actually make that connection, do they, between this particular match and all of those NWO era ones that mostly happened at Bashes at the Beach, didn't they? Um, but if you think about the fact that this one went down so well and the and the non-wrestlers managed to look so good and they were protected really masterfully and everyone was happy with the end result all round. And then lo and behold, all of the celebrity efforts from here on out involved and revolved around Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that makes sense that he's absolutely jumped on that bandwagon again. Mm-hmm. Um but for me, for me, yeah, I mean, we, we sadly lost Kevin Green late last year, didn't we? And yeah. upon news of his demise, everyone in the wrestling community talked about not just how nice and friendly and 
respectful person he was because obviously wrestling's had its fair share of celebrity crossovers that have come in for the paycheck but treated the whole industry with disdain. But Kevin Green was far from that. To, to his credit, like from what we've heard, Stephen Michael was far from that as well. Jeff Jarrett was an exclusive interview way back in 2018 on his show. He spoke very highly of... Um, of, of Michael and Green's work ethic and their attitude, which is obviously a big thing to the actual wrestlers in the locker room. That's what they yeah. want to see. They, they, they're they not going to be too critical if a, if a non-wrestler botches a spot, but they are going to get really annoyed if they if they treat the whole thing like a joke. Um, but that was we'll definitely... sleep on the tag rope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um... But uh, in this instance, not not only were the attitudes good, but if you think about it, because I think he had he had one or two other dalliances, Kevin Green, and each yeah. time he he looked way better than he should have. Whereas, as as we know, outside of this carefully booked and structured environment, Stephen Michael would try to do the grind as a wrestler and have singles matches against random people and Nitro. And they were, they, for the most part were absolutely abysmal. And sometimes you'd worry that someone was going to die from an accident. <laughs> but um, yeah, Kevin Green really was one of the better in ring non wrestlers we've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, there's no, there's not many others that, that managed to do as shockingly well as he did. So it's, 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 it's sad news from last year. It's a big yeah. loss. But this one, I, I still watching it back so many years on. I've watched it countless times. And it still gets me just how they managed to, to get this right. And yes, that just, just that Ric Flair kick in the face spot. I could just, <laughs> Someone gift that and I'll just watch it on loop with a tin of beer in my hand laid, laid up on my sofa after a hard day's work. I'll just watch that gift over and over again. Beautiful. Okay, it's now time for Eric Bischoff to talk to the outsiders as they get to be called. Um, they had He had promised that they would be here. He'd invited them to attend the show tonight. Um, so Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, um, who are again, yet to be named, they come through the curtain, which I thought was maybe a bit of an oversight because they're not officially WCW talents in the storyline. Um, Bischoff says if they want a match, they can have it at Bash at the Beach next month. He specifically asks them if they work for the WWF and they say no, which sorts that legal issue out, I suppose. Um, they're still saying that they have a third surprise. They ask Bischoff who WCW's three men are. And uh, Bischoff says he can't tell them right now, but he'll be able to tell them tomorrow night. So he's basically invited them onto a pay-per-view to not tell them anything. Um, this angers Hall and Nash. Hall tells Bischoff not to jack them around and punches Bischoff in the stomach. With Bischoff hunched over, Nash powerbombs him off the stage through a table that's conveniently placed right by the ramp. This heinous move gets a huge babyface pop, of course. Uh, Shivani leaves the broadcast position to check up on Bischoff, leaving the pay-per-view in the broadcast in the sole charge of Dusty Rhodes. Um, he's still adding an S to Steve McMichael's name before throwing to Dave Penzer, who isn't introducing this match. Um, he corrects himself, throws to Michael Buffer, who says nothing, and uh, Lex Luger comes down for his world title rematch, but first jumps down to check on Eric Bischoff. So before we get to the world title match, our main event, which is kind of just glued in, glued onto this uh, this angle, um, this, this was, bearing in mind it's 96, this was quite a shocking angle for the time of a, a broadcaster getting powerbombed by talent through a table, James. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was quite surprising. I mean, and you can you can tell from the reaction. It was, I I guess it I get. I mean, obviously it was planned planned that way. But um, Shivani going down and to check on him really really made it feel like that he he might be in uh, Bishop might might be in serious trouble. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean whether whether they thought it through enough um, leaving Dusty Rose on his own. Um, was potentially a bit of a mistake. Um, it it was have... mercifully brief, I suppose. Yeah, well, it was, but you know, you know, you know, when someone's left on their own and you really feel for them, like in a, in, a, in a pub and you're running late and they're left on their own, and uh, I, I was like, come on, he's got to come back soon because he can't keep feeling that way. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, yeah. James, James, you, you say that as as a typical person yeah you say that friends in the uh friends in the pub but I'll, for a second i want you to put your your manager's hat on and you as well Dean. not just as a, a wrestling manager but you have worked you you work in management yeah in your day yeah. job i want you guys to put your management hat on if you're overseeing this this is dusty roads being left to his own devices be honest you're fretting that he's suddenly going to start turning this into a dick murdoch tribute <laughs> and he'll start he'll dust out the uh the 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 old suit with a white hood or so I don't know. Yeah, this was his favourite clan outfit, and he loved to burn this cross. And yeah, but he's not was, racist, um... but it's his favourite one. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was really concerning, and and yeah, as uh, as Dean kind of alluded to it, it the whole thing felt like it was overshadowing the you know the the wrestlers when they were coming to the ring were just peering over, looking at this. this the broadcaster just lying on the floor and through a table, um, which clearly, by the way, clearly isn't a table either. It wasn't a table. It was, it was yeah. like a it was like a wooden frame with a bit of crepe paper attached to it. Anyway. And, and the uh, the tablecloth. Never put never trust a table with a cloth over it in a wrestling show because it means it's covering something up. But I I suppose the fact that it's happened there and, and Lex Luger's checking on him as well makes it feel more. Um, unplanned i guess you know like it, no one expected it to happen like that so they that's that's why it's happened like that if you see what i mean absolutely but it, re- yeah. it, but it really under undermines the main event then doesn't it i mean yes. it really sells that bit but then it under undermines this this luger giant match but yeah you could have had it like before the bubba tenter match or something but yeah Maybe. Yeah. maybe. I, I do have a theory on that that I'll, I'll divulge after we discuss the actual main event. But the one thing I'll say about this is you're spot on, Dean, in the whole realism parts. And, and the one thing I like the most is that they he, he refuses to use their names. I thought that was a nice little touch. Still mm. bit of the disdain. He's still treating them as, uh, you know, they're, they're, he, they're, they're a threat. They are to WCW's detriment. So he's not going to dignify them with names. They've come through the entrance, I know. But remember, they were invited to discuss the terms of this of this match they're going to have. And they're, and they're saying there's going to be a third person. So it's going to be a six-man match. And because the invite was laid out, uh, they're allowed to walk straight through, and that just makes it even more uh, poignant that for for something as simple as oh we're going we're going to decide the the, the members of Team WCW later, they attack him. It's it's a really whimsical trigger happy reason to attack him, but that makes him even more dangerous. And as I said, it makes it more poignant that he's invited them there to to try and do it like a like like a boss like a like a figurehead of the of the broadcast. 
and he's realised that he's he's in for a war. And you'll remember yeah. six months later, they retconned it into the rationale of why Bischoff ultimately sided with the New World Order when push comes to shove. Well, because he... What was the reason for that again? I, mean, he I do said, remind. He he said he said in his promo he said he had a wake up call when he was in the hospital that night, and he started to rethink what side is he wanted to. Wear. And then they they gave the impression that as obviously Hogan's joined and they're growing in strength and they're winning the battles and they're uh, and they're really terrorising WCW. He made the decision that he they were hip and cool and he wanted to be with them. So ah, this all kicked off, and he did tie that into the into the thing. But yeah, they've said about uh, oh yeah, are you from the World Wrestling Federation? No, uh, you yeah. remember the the Nitro book guy Evans pretty much confirms they they had to run that little bit of the dialogue as part of the legal battle. Yes, literally. And it was really weird just to hear Eric Bischoff say the word WWF or the WWE pay per view. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. Okay, so main event time. It's the World Heavyweight Title. Lex Luger challenging the Giant, accompanied by Jimmy Hart. Um, and having followed this story on our Nitro watch longs, it is odd that there's no video package to recap recent events that led up to this match. Um, especially given that there have been choke slams through tables. Um, as the giant comes down the aisle, Shivani thankfully returns to the broadcast position. Luger is looking even more subdued and serious than before following the assault on Bischoff. He starts off fast with plenty of strikes, knocking Giant over the top rope to the floor before the Giant press slams Luger through the middle and top rope back into the ring, which looks very impressive. Luger jumps on Giant's back with a sleeper hold, but Jimmy Hart jumps up on the apron and is hovering with his megaphone, waiting for Luger to get into striking range, but then Sting runs down to chase Hart away, which Liam surely answers the question once and for all of what is the deal between Sting and Lex Luger. Yeah. Um, I think you're Giant, right. Yeah, that's that's they've put that one to bed it's now. Done. Yeah. Um Giant throws um yeah, Giant throws Luger off him and takes over on the offense. Now that Sting has gone, uh the crowds are silent again. It doesn't appear that anyone either believes Luger can win or even wants him to for that matter. Um Giant hoists Luger up into an over the shoulder backbreaker, nearly losing him on the way up, but then lifts him while he's lifting him up while he's in the position where Luger can't help him, shows the phenomenal strength of the guy at this stage of his career. Um, Luger tries to slam the giant, which elicits a small pop, but he collapses under the weight and giant gets a two count. Luger then wobbles the giant with a vaulting kick over the top rope, followed by some clotheslines and forearm smashes as an off balance giant flails his arms around in that way that they always get big guys to do, which I absolutely hate. He then chop blocks his knee from behind, gets the giant down to one knee, which allows Luger to land some punches, but giant shoves him off into the corner. Luger, uh, sorry, giant then misses a charge into the corner and is left lying prone across the top rope. Luger says he's going to put him in the torture rack while he's up there, uh, but he can't hold his weight and falls face first onto the canvas. That is simply the moment that Giant needs to signal for the choke slam, which he hits for the title retaining pinfall in 9 minutes 21 seconds. The show then goes off air moments later in what to me felt like a bit of a flat finish in an underwhelming main event. What did you make of it, James? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I've actually written down underwhelming. I've spelled it wrong, actually. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I need Liam to sub me. But yeah, it was. Um, I yeah, it just. I think it. I don't know whether it stemmed from um, 
the, the, the business that happened before, but it, it felt like the energy had gone out of, of the event at that point and these two didn't seem to didn't seem to be any position to to get it out. I I I get that you now you now explained the sting thing, but I even found that peculiar that such a big star would come out about a third of the way into the match, mm. get rid of Jimmy Hart, and then just leave and never be seen again. It was that was I found that a bit odd. And then yeah, Luger was obviously spending quite a lot of time trying to trying to pick the giant up to not a great effect, and then choke slam game over. And it, yeah, that was kind of it really. So um, here, here's what I would have done in this situation. You, you've had, you know, we, we've seen the build-up to this Dean on the Nitros, and it's it's there. It's kind of there. It's kind of middling. It's they're two guys who are main event worthy. It's a world title match. They've had a couple of matches with non-finishes before, but it still doesn't feel like a huge end of show program. Mostly because the whole dynamic where you know Luger spent uh, six months or more as a hill managed by Jimmy Hart who's also the Giants manager he's not in the Dungeon of Doom but he's affiliated with via Hart but he's still doing it you know it was a tremendous storyline with Sting he was he was slapping the fans hands when Sting had his eyes on him as the tag team champions but then Sting had turned his back and he's like giving the fans a stink eye because he still hates them. He's playing that middle it, middle of it perfectly. And because there wasn't like a proper end to it, they kind of just... Well, one of the reasons this is a running joke when we say, what's the deal between Sting and Luger? Is because they'd kind of just run around in circles on that storyline for months. And the, the, the efforts of the Stings and Lugas and the people also involved in it kind of made it enjoyable to watch. While the commentators just said... What's the deal with Sting and Luger? It got really lazy and meandering. So there could have been a better payoff to the whole triangle between Sting, Luger and the Giant here, especially considering it was Sting versus the Giant in the main event of the previous pay-per-view at Slambury. Could have paid it off well here. I like the whole thing with um, Luger checking on Bischoff. It made sense, you know, he he's come out and he's gone there because that's just happened. If he tried to ignore it, I think it would have made this man even more of a flat afterthought. But here's what I would have done. I'd have, I'd have had Luger pinning for the title. And I think maybe a way to have done because they've built Giant ever since he took the belt off Flair. Built him as this unstoppable monster, really rehabilitated him. I know they didn't want to lose him after building him back up. But maybe when he collapsed of the tall track situation, I'd have maybe done the old Bret Hart Diesel thing where he tries to pick him up so he can chokeslam him. But he's dead weight. He seems really done. Uh, but he's playing possum and he manages to grab a small package, which I don't think at this point anyone would even try to have got um, the giant in a small package. But maybe with... With, with Luger's arms and legs, and considering you don't normally see him go for a cradle, uh, he really surprised him and snares him in it and gets the enough a surprise title win that scenario would have got the biggest pop of the match, especially considering that the the fans had had their load from um from the outsiders angle. And the main reason that they've done the title change, even though they've put a lot of work into the giant, done it in that fluky way to try and protect him, but considering that you know you've got the big hill threat coming here and the giant is still you know he, he's a monster hill it would have been much better when push come to shove at road wild the pay-per-view after bash at the beach and hogan's reveal and hill turn yeah i think doing luger versus hogan there which was you know being made out to be a pretty special match when luger 
jumped over, they had a non-finish on an early Nitro, but they didn't have a big pay-per-view match yet. I think running that with 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 Lugo carrying the flag for WCW as the champion and losing it to the New World Order would have been a much more significant way of doing that. And it would have just given a better end to the pay-per-view. So in that, in that situation, if you've booked yourself into that call, obviously, you, you know, Dean, as a, as a former booker yourself, they say the best cure of, of getting out of booking yourself in the corner is to not book yourself in fucking corners. But <laughs> considering they put themselves in this situation, I'd have just done the crowd-pleasing finish. And you've got you, you've got a guy who's going to be in the Bash at the Beach main event, uh, carrying the belt and really coming across like an anti-outsider's force for the storyline. I disagree. I think you. I don't think you want to take the belt off him. I, I think if, considering the next pay per view is Road Wild, where you've got inexplicably well because it's WCW, you've got um, a crowd of bikers who aren't wrestling fans. You want the biggest guy on the roster to be your main event to impress impress the. Uh, the, the viewers to me well but. did he impress them when he took a belt shot to the face for the finish then had to lay unconscious for a 10 minute closing angle involving Ed Leslie and the birthday cake hey. <laughs> we'll get to that one it'll be fun we'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> but um, overall then James would you would you give this a thumbs up thumbs down or thumbs in the middle uh, I think overall probably thumbs up just about um, it, no, I, I really enjoyed it, and it was great to it was great to get back to watching WCW after so long. Um, yeah, it might have been partly nostalgia, which has made me give it the full thumbs up. But that's what watching wrestling is about, right? So, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, I definitely give it I give it a thumbs up, and it was yeah, it was great to see some of the favourites from my from my youth. So uh, it's just, it was just a shame about. I think with the NFL players in the the second to last event, so it wasn't such a great match. Although it was a great spectacle, it was, wasn't such a great match. And then the kind of the situation where it was ended up being a quite a a downbeat final, like a, a main event rather. It was that that I think that's what kind of let it down slightly. But aside from that, I think it was it was good. Do you think the uh, the NFL players match should have gone on last then? <sighs> Yeah, or 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 move the you know the table spot earlier to so there is less chance of the air being taken out the last match. But um, yeah, maybe they maybe they could have gone last. But obviously you've got the the title holder, so you want them to go in the main main event. Really, um, it's difficult. I yeah, I think I think they may be slightly. Well, I guess it, you know, you guys know more than me. It depends on the storyline, really. If, they, if they're if they happy really selling that the table situation is a really big thing and they're happy to take a hit on the main event to carry that storyline through because it's so huge for WCW, then, you know, it makes complete sense. I'm basically watching it as a, stand, as a standalone, really. Sure, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's a slightly different context. So I can understand why they did it. And, and I suppose, um, Liam, thinking about how the uh, NWO storyline really turned around their fortunes, maybe maybe that hit was worth taking. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, you'll remember when we did the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, well, we, we loved it. Well, especially the, the, the more the three of us on that episode really dug deep and close analysed it, the more we liked it even more. And that really cements that as, as one of the great 
those two pay-per-views of all time. For for me, the Great American Bash '96 is up there as well. Not it's it's not in the final shortlist with the likes of Bash of the Beach '96. Uh, your obvious ones: um, Super Bowl Three, Spring Stampede '99. Uh, but I think it's on that second tier. Behind the final shortlist of them, it's it's a, probably a top ten all-time pay-per-views. There's some great stuff on this, and it's not without its its wrinkles and flaws, but it's it, it's really enjoyable. And, and considering what the ratio of good to bad those two pay-per-views was, I was very grateful to watch this back again. Good stuff. Okay, right. Well, that brings us uh, to the end of the podcast. James, thank you so much for giving up your time to uh, join us for this one. Um, if people want to get a hold of you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, I, I, honestly, I wouldn't bother. But uh, <laughs> yeah. if, if you really want to, um, James W. Dickens on, on Twitter is probably the best place to come. And thanks for having me. It's been great fun, lads. Cheers. Thank you very much. It has been great. Okay, well, um, we will be back. Uh, I guess it will be a Nitro watch along next time around, Liam, to get the aftermath of this very pay-per-view. Well, we're in the mood at the minute, aren't we? I'm sure we'll, we'll dive off course with a couple of special projects, but I'm enjoying the timeline because it is it's the summer cool. of 96 after all. Three lines on a shirt. Des lying <laughs> them on the telly. Yeah. Glory days. Glory days indeed. Okay, well, um, don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at BecauseWCW or on Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW. And if you are new, there is a a back catalogue of 87 other episodes. Be warned, the first six sound like we're locked in the toilet, but we got the hang of what we're doing after that. Um, So, yeah, we will be back very shortly with a Nitro Watch Long. In the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time and trouble to download this episode. And on behalf of Liam, this is me, Dean, saying I'll see you ringside.